It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. We've got Terry Buffalo, CEO and Chief Financial Officer of American Cannabis Company. Terry, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Well, thank you, Josh. Uh, Great to be here. Appreciate it. How did you get in the industry? How did it all get started? Tell us the the story. (laughs) What's funny, uh, Josh, I uh, spent 25 plus years in the financial world owning owning broker-dealers and decided to step away from that back in 2013. Uh, after selling a private company to a public company, I just went to an MJ conference up in Chicago back in March of 2015. Uh, took a look around the room and realized real quick, this was an industry I needed to try to get my foot in the door. And I was fortunate enough to make some contacts at the convention. I was able to meet with the owners and co-founder, two co-founders of American Cannabis Company, uh, joined the company as an advisor that came in as a chief operating officer, then took over as chief executive officer and been with the company since March of 2016. And every day is a fun and challenging day. <laughs> That's crazy because cannabis is already incredibly regulated, right? So kind of uh, tell me this, the process of going public. I mean, you already operate a publicly traded company as well. So when people are looking at starting a business, rarely do they look at an exit strategy. And I I would think that public going public would be kind of in that line of an exit strategy um, at some point, right? You're giving up some ownership and all of that. And there's some trials and difficulties. Walk us through that process. How do you even get there? How do you look at an RTO versus an IPO and everything in between? Like I'd I'd love hearing about that process. (laughs) Well, just as we all know right now, SPACs is the biggest word out there going, hottest thing going. Uh, That's a specialty purpose acquisition company, right? Not to be confused with the specialty purpose vehicle and SPV we used to call SPACs like 10 years ago. They are rebranded. Right. Correct. Yes. Uh, American Cannabis Company itself, they did a reverse merger of the RTO uh, back in uh, 2013, I guess it was actually before I was with the company. Uh, but most companies in general, they, they do try to go the IPO route. They're going to have a lot of difficulties in time involved and a lot of expense versus if they can do a reverse mergers, much quicker process. And also a lot of the U.S. companies look to, of course, list on the Canadian exchanges, which is a little different process than in the United States. Uh, there's pluses and minuses being a public company. You know, you, you, everything is reported. You have to disclose everything all the time. You're always in, under the spotlight. And which is good and bad. I like it because then you, you know your your uh, shareholders can hold you accountable. Like if you're just an LLC or something, you may not really know what's going on <laughs> with that operation that you have your money invested into. But you know the big plus being a public company uh, is having access to the capital markets. And during this cannabis um, uh, evolution or whatever you want to call it, we're looking at capital's been easier to acquire through a public company than through a private company. Needless to say. And that's because of access, probably. Right. Anyone can right. invest Liquidity. in the public markets, whereas right. if you're not public, you have to be an accredited investor or a high net worth individual. It's a lot more mm-hmm. challenging. Um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting when you're when someone decides to issue uh, equity versus debt, you know, warrants or rights or all of these these different financial options. Um, wouldn't it be just easier if if public if banking was available to all of these companies? Uh, what's your crystal ball predictions say for things like the Moore Act or um, anything that allows for cannabis banking? Is that going to be on the horizon in the near term? And what does that mean for companies? Uh, it'll be a game changer of all means. Uh, and, and yes, uh, it's just a matter of time that before, you know, 
federal legalizes cannabis, we don't have to deal with all these banking restrictions and more importantly, the 280E uh, that really affects on the retail and dispensary signs in general. But if you had just um, traditional type of banking was available, uh, it used to be a much different uh, environment for all companies. Uh, you know, right now what companies can get is usually some type of convertible debt. It's very toxic, 20, 25 plus percent interest rates. They want to pull money weekly from your account. They, they basically just choke codes uh, an operation from expanding. And so if they were able to have traditional, you know, pulling rates, we'll call it, lines of credit, operating capital, working capital, it would definitely uh, make the industry uh, much uh, much easier to, to navigate, we'll call it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, as an investor and as uh, you know, CEO and chief financial officer of a publicly traded company, how do you determine whether or not to issue equity versus debt? Kind of tell me the difference between, you know, as you're running the company versus an investor, mm-hmm. what are you looking at from, from when you wear both of those hats? Is there, mm-hmm. um, is there advantages, uh, pros and cons, issuing equity versus debt? Well, there's definitely, I always have a saying, Josh, uh, debt will hurt you to, uh, today, but equity hurts you tomorrow. Mm. And the reason I say that debt immediately, you have a, an interest rate, a coupon, even if the uh, principal's not amortizing, you've got a cash outlay, let's call it during this time. So, you know, if you can go out and raise the money, you better make sure you have uh, ability to, to, to generate the cash flow to pay the interest and also be able to be prepared to pay for the principal at maturity. Uh, myself, I prefer debt. I come from working in the high yield junk markets back in Wall Street early days. I've always been a debt bond kind of guy. I prefer to use debt, especially in acquisitions, where we can then cash flow these, uh, uh, you know, the, the debt in general. So we're not diluting our shareholders. I'm always concerned about dilution of our shareholders. But at some point, you have to dilute shareholders in this space because it's right now it's a capital intense sector, as we all know. But personally, I prefer to use our debt. Uh, either straight debt, preferred type of structure. Again, uh, as long as you can cash flow that, that, that interest payment. We're seeing a lot of cannabis companies. Well, the entire industry is being labeled as essential. Uh, Massachusetts made the mistake early on last year. They figured that out real quick. Um, and I think with consumers and every everybody seems to be paying off credit card debt. Companies in the cannabis industry are paying off a lot of debt as we're seeing a lot of these equity prices surge recently. Why is that happening? What's your take on that? Um, are, are we kind of looking for, and I don't want to, I guess I am kind of loading the question here. I'm wondering if it's because people are looking at the potential for federal legalization and therefore making their balance sheets look better as people kind of shift from maybe the Canadian markets to the potential for the American private markets. I have to agree with you on that. Um, you know, we've got to have a strong balance sheet in, in this environment, by all means, for this cannabis space, because capital intense, as we know. So, uh, and, and there's a lot more tension with the the new party being in-house, of course, everyone's anticipating this federal um, legalization, which is what, as they always say, rising tides lift all boats. And I think it's done a lot, you know, over the last uh, four, five, six weeks in the cannabis space, lifting a lot of these stocks out there that were sitting uh, much lower than they were, let's say, before uh, the new uh, uh, president stepped in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when that happened, when, when the election went off in November, uh, with our predictive mm-hmm. analytics, we saw that a month in advance. And so we saw with all of the hype and everything go up, um, great opportunity to get in. Virginia like wasted no time. And they were like, yeah, we're on it. You know, and I think right, Hawaii, right, yeah. I Hawaii yeah. just passed something as well. Uh, right. So they might be the 17th state to jump on board for REC. Right. And then there's 
over 33 met 34 medical stuff, something so i'm i'm curious you know at what point is it going to trigger that federal um thought to either reschedule deschedule or otherwise because we were seeing with the public markets so um from ipo thought to being publicly traded and available to buy on on the secondary market it took about almost 500 days just 10 years ago now when companies are filing an ipo and then uh, tradable on on the exchanges it's it's less than 200 days and to compare that to cannabis companies from the time that they announce that they're going uh, rec or MMJ to uh, having rec stores, it took California 20 years. <laughs> it, right, it, it took Colorado, I think like 400, 400 days, maybe, maybe it was a couple of years, actually. I don't remember the, the exact count. But now we're seeing that change and it's happening a lot faster. So the rollouts for these emerging markets are happening much, much quicker. Is that technology? Is it because we already have, you know, bills and everything in place and they don't have to uh, create the, the regulatory framework? They just have to copy it. Why, why are companies able to go public faster and why are new rollouts happening quicker? What's your opinion on that if you have one? Of course, the technology is out on both fronts. You know, the IPO getting through the process with the SEC, a lot of it depends on your legal counsel, um, making sure, you know, the prospectus, everything is in place. So there's not a lot of questions back and forth with the SEC that can delay. And so technology has definitely uh, expedited that and cut that time down on, on the IPOs. We see other ones that never get done because they're, let's just say, sloppy in general. Um, but for these companies rolling out now in these new states, yes, it's much easier because at least there is some framework. Think back when there was just Colorado or just California, you, you know, so at least a state has the four corners, let's call it. And they want to tweak depending on if they want their alcohol and beverage to regulate, they want to set up a new regulatory body, to whatever it fits inside there, the taxing, how they want to tax, that's all with them, but at least they have the four corners that they can work with. And then if a state already has medical, well, needless to say, they already have dispensaries. They already have, you know, POS system, inventory tracking. They already have everything in there. So it's not a big flip today, all of a sudden shut down tonight, being medical tomorrow, open up medical and adult use by having different POS systems. There's different requirements you have to have to see you keep them separated, but it's most of your infrastructure is already in place. Hmm. All right. I wanted to get your opinion on um, the futures market. So I was recently speaking to a guy, his name is uh, Jay Cowie, and he worked uh, for 17 years as a trade floor, uh, a, a trader on the floor with the CBOE, Chicago Board of Options Exchange, and, um, you know, in the pits yelling, and I always envisioned, you know, cannabis at 420, let's go 420, I want five, you know, just giving all these signs and flips, whatever. You worked in the debt markets, you you more than experienced in, in that field, uh, in, in finance. Um, and I'm curious when cannabis is a commodity, what is your take on that? Can hemp, um, be a futures commodity? Will cannabis get there? Um, because the feedback I'm getting is that the, the variations in cultivars wouldn't really allow for the futures market that wants consistency that we're seeing, like with tobacco, it's the same thing all the time. What's your take on the futures markets, uh, when the eventuality happens that cannabis is a commodity? You know, the, the hemp side may be easier to have commodities in general, but yes, you're going to have different issues because of variations in the genetics, where it's grown at, quality. So until the industry progresses more where they really are using more uh, hemp in general for toilet paper, for paper in general, for all these other 
uses. I mean, there's 5,000 plus uses we can use hemp for that's not being used in a general, in general. Um, cannabis itself, growing outdoors, again, you're gonna have variations. The only way you could really have a consistent quality product is growing indoors where you can control your environment. That could either be in a greenhouse or it could be in a structure building, whatever. But you know, anytime you're going outdoor, you have too many variables you cannot control. So you will always have that uh, issue of consistency. However, the oil is a whole other point. Once you extract, you know, you're able to clean up so you could get that back to some type of standard. Uh, you know, you'd have to have some kind of grading level on it in general. I mean, just like soybean corn, there's all different types of levels of the, you know, where these products are in a sense, or, you know, the, the quality of the product. So you could look at it like that, but it's going to be very difficult um, because of that variation in, the, in your product. Mm-hmm. I want to dive a little bit into uh, your thought process of, of investing and what you guys are looking at. Uh, before we do that, I want to just kind of gauge where where the industry as as a whole pre-COVID. So before the pandemic, after the pandemic, what was investing like? So I remember in 2019, people were looking at like accurate vaping. They were try- just starting to kind of look at some cannabis cafes, even though that industry has gone nowhere. I think beverages were all the rage, um, but accurate dosing was definitely a big thing with vaping. So last year seemed kind of dead. A lot of people didn't really know what to invest in. So I'm curious, pre versus post COVID, a lot of things have have ramped up, like delivery is definitely going to be a thing where uh, lounges are, are, are sidetracked. So what, where is your investing? How has it diverged pre and post pandemic? You know, it's interesting. Um, because even though we had great numbers being the cannabis industry, you know, last year in COVID, because everyone was basically at home, and of course they adapted, made adjustments. We could allow delivery, which has opened up a whole new avenue. That's a very interesting business model because there's not a lot of capital expenditure with that. Of course, you have vehicles and people, but you know, and, and yet, sorry, sorry for interrupting, Terry, but yeah. and yet, Snoop Dogg's investment ease lost thirty-five million dollars because they didn't know how to do it. So that's another podcast. I don't know how they lost thirty-five yeah. million dollars because it shouldn't be that hard to deliver. But I digress. Uh, Sorry for interrupting. No, Josh, you understand. I look at numbers every day on all these companies. And I still shake my head. Right. How can you do that? I mean, in general, you're not realizing you got holes all in your bucket and water is just pouring out. But um, in the cafes, are always going to be a challenge because you, know, you can't sell the cannabis there until the walls change, that is. So how do you monetize this? I mean, charge someone to come in, sit here, and they're able to consume. So they can do that other places. Yeah, and it's the gathering. It's the camaraderie. But... How do you rent's expensive as we know in places where you would need to have these with good locations to attract people? Uh, you know, what I'm looking and focus on more is the you know the brand and the quality. There's a lot of missing out there. There's a lot of um, you can't have a consistent product if you don't have solid SOPs and key hold people hold people accountable. And it's just like anything you're growing. If it's tomatoes, bananas, whatever, you there's a process to do this. And you have too much variations out there. And when you go to your dispensary today versus next week, sour diesel today, you get it next week, you may have a completely different effect on you, different taste, different terpene profiles. That's not a product. That's not branding and getting consistent to be able to provide people what they want. The beverage industry, as you mentioned a while ago, Josh, it is still, it's going to explode. Uh, you know, there was a big problem with dosing, as you've mentioned, problem with the taste, these problems are being resolved. And especially the powder mix now, you know, drink your cannabis type stuff. This is going to be so great because you're eliminating the smell. 
You're also looking at the female market. The female market is growing tremendously and people are missing out on this market. It takes a different way to market to the females than a 30-year-old male. You're just looking for you know, cannabis products where the female may be looking for different experiences. So there's plenty of opportunities out there still we're getting a brand and getting quality brands out there to build a, a role of customer base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the conundrum of trying to to make a business model out of a, a lounge is going to be difficult. I've seen several of them go out of business in Portland. Uh, Colorado has a couple of them that are trying to figure that out, whether it's a co-working model like Cultivated Synergy out in Denver um, right. or something you know out here in, in Seattle, like a Seattle Superchronic Cafe. Um, that can serve food. I don't know if it's the McDonald's model. It wasn't necessarily the burgers that were making money, but the real estate, if it's that model, maybe it's a restaurant idea or concept or a co-working space or an event center. Um, but I, I believe that once we are allowed to consume in public, it will be this the window into the soul of the community so that people can see that, that it's not, um, you know, people or, or uh, you know, uh, nefarious it's it's actually just really laid back more so than a bar when they see that happening Absolutely. it's going to change a lot of a lot of folks i think um, yeah so i'm curious about um what you're going to be investing in in the future so i kind of want to share this um okay this is uh something that i aggregated early on in the year just looking at uh, you know about 14 different publications on what they were predicting for 2021 number one being that they thought uh 41 percent of the uh 14 or so um people that I, that i grabbed um there's about 40 to 50 data points really small data set because i don't think people really knew what to expect last year i grabbed 12 different publications and had about 160 data points uh, just to compare that but the majority this year thought that something was going to be surrounded by the legal or regulations or political at 41% whereas last year number one was price and profit people needed those balance sheet clean um, and i'm curious just from this list where your investments uh ideology is at and where you think you know crystal ball predictions will occur in cannabis um you know from from your own standpoint is it going to be that the market continues to consolidate that hemp is going to be in in high demand with cbd or or other rare cannabinoids that the demand will be there um with you know businesses being deemed essential is it going to be international expansion or investment surging you know josh the the number one you have there of course the legal luggage for that's going to dictate everyone's movement going forward in general uh, you know from there it's it's the demand the demand is continually increasing for the cannabis product when you look at count cbd it is is, is a past tense in a sense we have to look at other cannabinoids cbg cbn these other cannabinoids are now coming to light and i think they have better uh, use than some of the cbd that, that that is out there and one thing about cbd you have to be very careful on all the snake oil that's out in the market because everyone jumped on that price rock, on that bandwagon. The international expansion, that's all going to depend on legalization again. It's federally legal because, again, we can't ship across the state lines. We can't ship out of the United States or receive anything coming into the United States. So that would play it and really make it a very interesting environment. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to price and profit. You know, you're running a company, you're a for-profit company, you have shareholders. You have to be very strategic in how you're you know, allocating your capital, how you're making acquisitions and how you're going to provide uh, shareholder value to your to your shareholders. And it comes down to profit. Your company has to be profitable at the end of the day, you know. So 
all of these are variables that you have to take into consideration as you're you know looking at the landscape going forward. Mm-hmm. What's your take with with the essential business? Is is the lockdown been good for cannabis overall, even though we haven't been able to go to any events? Um, I feel like there's a lot of new states that are kind of just floundering because they're not going to really have, you know, the um, new tourism or new opportunities to get maybe the equipment they need or financing or just the strategic partnerships that happen a lot. I know that that you're really big on strategic partnerships. I am as well. And I feel like the last year that's kind of, um, it hasn't been there. So I'm excited that MJ BizCon is going to be around in October. It's going to give a lot of people an opportunity to kind of do that. And I'm wondering, with your opinion, has the lockdown um, affected that? Well, it's definitely affected the, 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 the events, exhibits, and uh, you're getting together in person camaraderie by all means. What it has done is help the overall cannabis market, like you say, essential. Also, we've seen a, a, a big increase in top-line sales for cannabis products across the board during this time. We have seen less per customer per ticket, but higher tickets. Because again, people going out once every week or two or once a month to the store as opposed to where they can drop by every week or every other day, whatever their, their, their needs are in a sense. But, uh, but now how do we go forward? You know, how's it going to be if people are still going to be more recluse going forward? Are people going to get out now that these COVID shots are getting out to most everyone? So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, moving forward the landscape changes in the cannabis market. We're going to go back to our pre-COVID where we're seeing more ticket sales but lower price, you know, $60, $70 per ticket versus $90 to $100 per transaction. So we'll see. Um, you know, we all have to be prepared, though, <laughs> and have plan B if plan A is not going to work. Yeah, I'm we're seeing a lot of um, maturity in the industry, good and bad. We're, we're seeing that um, the CEO of Ease, you know, delivery company we just mentioned, getting sued uh, by the federal government for a hundred million dollar um, issue with him selling cannabis online with credit cards. Can't do that. So, uh, being publicly traded, you have to deal with compliance and regulations. How many folks do you dedicate to that? And would you advise everyone go public? Because I know a lot of people who don't even have a chief financial officer and it scares me. <laughs> they don't have a lawyer. They don't have a CFO. And they're like, we're going to go public. And they don't have any compliance people. What are the percentage of, of folks that um, that don't have compliance? And, and tell me a little bit about that process of being compliant and heavily regulated. You know, just coming in, I came from the financial world. I'm really used to SEC, FINRA, state regulatory bodies, et cetera. And so I understand the importance of compliance. And that's what I do see in the industry. A lot of the operators, they don't understand what it's going to mean when compliance comes. When the IRS comes, when the regulatory bodies come, they're going to either take flesh or they're going to shut them down. And that's very expensive. You know, I used to see this in the securities business all the time. So having that and knowing that from the past, I'm always looking forward on compliance. We look hire and we contract with experts in different areas. If a company is looking to go public, if they don't have a very strong SEC attorney, forget it first thing. You know, if they don't have a strong accounting, I call it financial hygiene. If you do not have your financial in order, don't even think about it. If you don't understand the rigmarole you're going to have to go through to get your books cleaned up. You know, it's not, so you have to have a compliance team in there. You have to have controllers. You have to have people looking at your compliance from all angles, from all your filings, all the way down to HR. If you're, you're no matter what you have, you have the operator, the inventory, the HR, your security, everything is compliance related some way, form or fashion. 
and you better make sure you've got uh, your house in order, we'll call it. <laughs> but if, they, if these individuals looking to go public do not have uh, the, the team with them, um, it, it, it'll never happen. And if they do, I hope the SEC shuts them down. <laughs> yeah, I worked for a stockbroker in 2008. And it was a private company. And then ING out of the Netherlands came in and, yeah. and bought them. And um, and so we had one person that was in charge of all of compliance at the yeah. time. And then when we became part of ING, it, that department swelled exactly. to the point where <laughs> before we sold to E-Trade, we had probably 15 people in compliance. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. we had a whole team built up because it's obviously important. And all so of that- last brokerage firm, I had about 25. Wow. Um, we had about 200 brokers, but we had 25. So think about the ratio of that. 25 compliance people for 200 uh, right. producers. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, when when cannabis is is eventually a commodity and, and um, you're able to get $20 a pound for it, you know, I was in a vape shop and I'm looking over at this tobacco and this bag of, of generic, you know, tobaccos, $20 a pound. I'm like, wow, when is that going to happen with cannabis? Do you have a, a crystal ball that that gives you a date on that? Like when, because the prices for a kilo of CBD was $18,000, I think in 2018. Now CBG and CBN, I'm seeing maybe four or five grand for a kilo, which is still five times more than CBD. Um, when is the price of flour going to come down to $20 a pound? What's, what's your crystal ball on that, Terry? You know, until it's federally legal, we bring it across state lines, but it all comes down to your cost. You know, if you're in a place like Oklahoma where electricity and water is very, very cheap versus California, you're not going to be able to compete because, you, you know, so there's what's going to come down to the price. It will have a significant decrease once it is federally legal. And it will take some time for everyone to ramp up, get all the logistics in place, transporting increase state lines, et cetera. But there's no way, since you're isolated in a state, that you're going to have such price drop because you can only grow so much because most states, unlike Oklahoma, they limit the licenses. You know, so if you Do they? Have- Oklahoma has twice as many licenses as Oregon, which has 3,500 licenses and a million pounds or a million uh, joints uh, equivalent um, in excess. So I'm scared for anyone in Oklahoma... Are well, they- that's an interesting market because, again, the, the, not having uh, limitations on the number of licenses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, 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 we'll see how that changes and works out over the years. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about some of these places. Is Florida going to be able to afford to grow indoors? I'm assuming growing outdoors is going to lead to a lot of powdery mildew and issues, which, you know, some people well, might want to turn that into a, a concentrate and extract that. Not me. I don't like the mold to gold business model. Right, especially right, for yeah. somebody with a <laughs> compromised immune system. So where are people going to grow? You see Canada closing down all of these um, uh, greenhouses in addition to pulling back out of, out of um, Colombia, which makes no sense uh-huh. to me uh, why they would be a protectionist country. They should just be taking in the, the right. good terroir and cheap labor in Colombia. So is it going to just be in, you know, in certain countries, I mean, um, in counties and cities, like you have tomato growers, like all over the country, but in small numbers, you don't have 1400 tomato growers in Washington state, but we have 1400 cultivation facilities. When is that going to normalize? Pretty interesting. People look to maybe form some type of co-op so everyone's mm-hmm. working together so they could benefit, you know, for a lot of different things in general, we'll just leave it at that on the co-op side. But if, if we keep where we can't import, we're not competing against Colombia and you know, all these other countries. And, and Belize is a country that should really consider 
legalizing. They have very uh, fertile ground there. Uh, the labor's very inexpensive. They have great weather. So they, you know, but again, until they can import into the United States, it's not going to be that big a market. But if we're contained by the United States fence, let's call it top down all the way around, the cannabis has to be grown in the state. You have to look then where's the weather that's most favorable for you. A lot of places we can use hoop houses as opposed to just growing outdoors. We can use hoop houses. We do have some production when we have some uh, you know issues with weather or whatever comes up. So that's one thing to look at. Again, Oklahoma, they're sitting in a good spot because again, they have very low cost of electricity and very low cost of water. And those two of the things that you must have, of course, if you're growing any type of indoors. Now, going outdoors, um, you know, you get one crop, maybe two in some areas. Other places, you're only going to get one crop a year. So all these things are uh, you'd have to take in consideration because it comes down to your cost of goods. You know, if you're talking, you know, buying you know a pound for a hundred dollars. What is it going to cost to grow that, ship it, package it, and get it to that consumer? It may not be any market, it may not be any profit in there for, for people because their cogs are too expensive. And that's one thing I see in this industry. Most operators do not understand their cogs. I mean, how can you grow and not know your cogs? You don't know if you're making money, losing money, what? Yeah, I'd say personally, they have no idea about their finances. And professionally, they probably don't know checks and balances either, which probably makes Puerto Rico even that much more uh, of a gold mine. Uh, Puerto Rico being the only place for American can go and not pay federal taxes. They don't have congressional representation, so you can't have taxation. So will we see more companies utilize Puerto Rico for hemp and then eventually cannabis to get out of places like California with excessive taxes? Um, because if, if one company is competing in Puerto Rico to another company in, Cal- in California, they're going to have to make probably 25 to 30% more just to, just to compete directly with that company in Puerto Rico. That's an unfair advantage. And so I'm wondering how much longer it's going to take for people to understand that if you don't have an entity, bilingual call center or operations, research and development, or otherwise in Puerto Rico, you're probably not going to be around, especially if you're a hemp company. Um, wondering about your take on that and other opportunities people can take advantage of to stay in business because it's cutthroat. Well, it is. I mean, that's the whole thing. The tax advantage is something definitely to work out. I know a lot of companies have been looking to, uh, you know, incorporate down in Puerto Rico in general, especially in the cannabis space when you don't know, on the front end or the retail side because of that uh, being there to deal with 288, they're trying to get some relief on the other side of the federal tax of Puerto Rico. You know, they, the, the weather there is, is, is uh, you know, a good environment for growing a hemp and cannabis there. So um, we might have an operations there ourselves. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because you hear a lot of people talking about Jamaica, but Jamaica, I think, is on FinCEN's list of block countries. So if you have an investor in Jamaica, I don't know. I don't understand how you can pull money back to the U.S. It has to stay in Jamaica, or or you spend internationally. So you got all these all these people talking about Jamaica, and no one talking about Puerto Rico. And to me, my hair is going grayer by the day uh, as I'm pulling my hair out. Going, you guys don't even you don't even know what you're talking about. Um, They think Jamaica because Bob Marley's from there. I'm like, yo, look at the island next to you that's still part of the United States that doesn't allow taxes, folks. Right, right. I know, I know. (laughs) What else are you guys looking at? What's what's down the barrel of American Cannabis Company? You guys um, gonna be buying anybody? You guys expanding? Offering new products? What is what's in the the works for you guys? 
you know, we've uh, we'll continued our consulting business, Josh, but we've recently started making acquisitions in the plant touching space. Uh, we, we've uh, recently just finally defini- signed a definitive agreement with uh, three dispensaries and a 10,000 square foot growing nips in Colorado Springs. And we're still negotiating uh, for 60,000 square foot growth in extraction here in Denver, which hopefully by, you know, June, July, we'll call it, the company then would have three dispensaries, uh, two manufacturing facilities, and 70,000 square foot of growth space in the Colorado market. As we continue looking for other opportunities in Colorado and other markets, we uh, will continue, you know, we have our Silicon Living Soul. We're looking at bringing out a couple more varieties of the living soil that we currently have. Uh, we have a cultivation cube that we've done a complete revamp on um, some of the new technology that we've learned over the years. It's really interesting. One is called bottoms up, and it's basically an airflow. It's pushing the air from the bottom as opposed to circulating on top, eliminating perspiration on the bottom of the plants. Yeah. Also have the entirely mildew tremendously. We started doing this in greenhouses and just incorporated it into our cultivation cubes. Uh, so that, that's some of the new things we are doing more operational management now and continually doing, um, uh, or for, you know, SWOT type analysis for a lot of the operators who would come in sort of like, you know, the John Taft, the bar rescue concept, it's kind of like the cultivation rescue concept. We come in do the SWOT analysis, we give you recommendations, we can implement them. So that's another area that's really been, uh, getting more attention, but, our biggest focus now going forward will be, um, you know, making acquisitions for plant touching businesses in Colorado and outside of the, the, the Colorado market. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the yield uh, increases for that bottoms up technology. That sounds interesting. It is. It is. Are you looking at distressed more than emerging? I know like with New Jersey and all these other um, opportunities, those are exciting, but it's also got to be kind of from a value standpoint, Mm -hmm. looking at some of the distressed assets in maybe Oregon or Washington, if you're, if you're really, uh, really like risk. Um, Are you looking at distressed or are you looking at emerging uh, markets? I hate using the word distress, but we're not looking for, you know, the prima donna, the, the, the diamond in general, because they want such multiples. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't go into details right now, Josh. The, the one acquisition that we were just uh, did the defensive agreement on, it's basically one time it's gross and it's actually profitable, which you don't usually see that in the space. <clears throat> the other one we're working on right now is more of an opportunity. I'm going to call it. It's not distress. The building, everything runs and operates. The company that owns it is changing their business direction. They want out of the cannabis space. It's one of those things, you know, the 60,000 square foot is too big for a lot, but too small for some of the big boys. And so we've kind of found a sweet spot. We know that we're able in both of these facilities, we'll be able to double the production they're currently doing right now. So we'll see a significant increase in the revenue. And then we'll just have to work on, you know, cutting some costs and some expenses that we see that are out of line. But, you know, we're not looking to go out and get, you know, $2 million in gross revenue and pay $8 million for it. That's not going to work for our business model because there's no value there. You, how are you going to get that return? You never will in general. So, you know, we kind of look at a business as our uh, valuation is one-time gross, and then we make some adjustments depending on, you know, what they may have is some assets that we can benefit from, uh, their locations, et cetera, et cetera. So those are basically where we start looking at we're not really interested in paying much more than that one-time gross number. Because I come from the financial world. Usually it's always off of net numbers. And most of these uh, 
operators don't have a net number to, to have a multiple off of. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but you still see some crazy valuations oh, yes. that they're arbitrary. $420 million valuation. <laughs> you wonder when the lawsuit's going to happen as soon as the, exactly. the price takes a dip. Exactly. Uh, and some of these, you know, $800 million, I think um, you're seeing, you know, some companies out of California, I won't name names, <laughs> but they're buying <laughs> these, these companies up eight, 800 million, 900 million. And they're not always an arm's length deal, you know, and I'm just wondering like, at what point are they going to be a distressed asset? And I, maybe I throw that, that term out unfairly because I'm throwing in people who are, are ready to capitulate. They have solid brands and businesses, but they want out of the game. So I kind of just generally label that as a distressed asset, even though if it has value to me, it's in the same bucket as, as a distressed asset. Right, right. So no, yeah, the thing is you have a hard time because these public companies, Josh, um, it's a little different when you're public, non-public. You make an acquisition, you have to get past ASC 805 rules. You have to have you know, usually two years of audited financials. And it's very difficult to get a lot of these companies' uh, books in place back to financial hygiene to be able to get it to an audible stage in, in a sense. And so that's one of the biggest challenges out there. And you're going to see this money, like you say, it's an arm links uh, transaction. Uh, but we'll see how it unravels at some point in a sense, you know, because... If you ever want to get it to the public side in the U.S., you're going to have to go through the, the, the ASC rules. Now, if for some companies out there who want to be acquired, what is the process of due diligence um, when you're looking at them? Uh, can you just give me like a generalized idea of, of the process that you go through and the team that's involved in acquiring and all of the steps needed uh, and the timing? And, and I mean, it's, it's complex. It takes a while. Oh, it definitely is. Um, and, and it's, it's a lot of heavy lifting, I'll put it that way. I guess fortunate for me, you know, I've sold private companies to very large public companies. And so I've been through this ringer numerous times, we'll call it. And you basically have to get your plan together. We have a due diligence list. And let's just say it's probably, it's got a couple hundred items. Not everything will apply to every, every you know, acquisition. Uh, we go through, we check, we cross-check, but the acquisitions we make will be an asset purchased. We're not looking to make any stock acquisitions um, because we look, you know, we don't want an inherited liability because of this space and industry, as you know, it's almost all been cash. So it's real hard to do a audit on a company when it's a cash business. However, you have to cross-reference it back to your metrics, back to your payrolls, all these, uh, uh, again, back to compliance. All your compliance has to be in place so you know this company's running well. When I ask an individual or an operator for two years tax returns and they look at me with, you know, headline eyes, I know it's never going to get done. I'm not going to waste my time because you have to pay a, a good amount of money for auditors to do these audits for you. I mean, it could be six figures in a blink of an eye for an audit. So if you're not confident that you can get these financials in place, you're not even going to move forward, you know, with the uh, opportunity or with the potential opportunity, but due diligence is everything. Um, you know, you just gotta, you know, as I say, check, uh, check all the boxes in a sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to uh, mention at this point? No, Josh, uh, you know, I think we kind of touched on most everything today. Um, appreciate you having me on the show. Hopefully I'll be back, uh, you know, soon to talk about our, our next acquisition and look at our go forward plan with the company, you know, for the rest of 2021 and 2022 going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll have to have you back uh, in a few months, maybe this summer, uh, do a recap of what uh, this year looks like, what, what 22, what 2022 might look like. Um, what are some links? How can people get a hold of you? Where are you at? 
AmericanCannabisConsulting.com, TheACCLife.com, SoHumLivingSouls.com. Those are all the uh, URLs that are associated back to the American Cannabis Company. Okay. And ticker symbol AMMJ as well. So that is DT schedule. It is not five digits ending in F. You guys actually uh, have reports and, and file everything and, and you've got compliance and all that good we stuff. We filed a month early. Yeah. We filed March the 1st for, for our last year's K. I think that's uh, first time in history for a cannabis company. So that's we're it. Very proud of the team working hard to get us uh, across the finish line. Hell yeah. Should be proud of that. Yes, Terry Buffalo, he is the CEO and chief financial officer for the American Cannabis Company. Terry, I appreciate you being on the Talking Hedge. Thank you, Josh, so much. Have a great day. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.